If you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, and in today's episode, we are sitting down with a woman who inspires me in many ways and who is a role model for all of us to take action and make an impact wherever you are. On the show, we use the term entrepreneurial public servant to describe people who are making an impact on our, on our nation in both the public and private sector. And our guest, Dana Spain, adds to that the nonprofit sector. She's a self-proclaimed serial entrepreneur and philanthropist. Her bio experience and list of entrepreneurial and philanthropic accomplishments is too long for me to read, but I'll highlight a few. She was the director of training and communications for her, her family's business. She was the founder and, and continues to serve as the president emeritus of PAWS, which is the Philadelphia Animal Welfare Society. She is the founder and president emeritus of Haven Women, of Philadelphia's, Philadelphia's first and only shelter for homeless and transitioning female veterans, which is where Dana and I met. And last but not least, she is a real estate developer and builder uh, as the director of communications and public outreach for volumetric building companies, uh, which is her current project. Uh, and there's a nonprofit portion of that project that we'll talk about for veterans. Uh, so in her words, she does pets and vets. And we're excited to have you on the show, Dana Spain. Thanks, BJ. I don't know if I can live up to that, but I'm going to do my best. You already have. <laughs> um, so I think it's important that we did, we did first meet uh, when you were starting out Haven. And Haven has since, I don't think it was called Haven yet, was it? It was not. It was the Philadelphia Veterans Comfort House, which had been... Uh, in existence since 1992, serving Philadelphia and the region's veterans who were coming to the VA Medical Center just a couple blocks away to receive care. Uh, and then the VA Medical Center built their own uh, area and accommodations for those veterans. So it turned into more of a sheltering and, and transitional home. When I took it over at the end of 2016, uh, December of 2016, it had shut its doors. All of the uh, veterans were forced to move out. It was out of money. The building was not in code um, and basically it was just a debacle. And the people left in the organization, although very well-meaning and well-intended, uh, really didn't have a way to save it. So they offered me the opportunity to take the keys or they were going to sell the property and um, give it to charity, give the proceeds to charity and move on. Uh, I was just transitioning off the pause board. So I took the opportunity to take over the organization, rebuild the house, um, quite literally the physical plant of the house, uh, and rebuild the organization, which we did as well. Um, and uh, we started welcoming our female veterans in, as opposed to a male perimeter, uh, because working with other VSOs in the region, we realized that the hardest to place with the fewest choices were our women veterans in transition, either coming out of drug addiction recovery, um, other sheltering, coming off of somebody's couch, out of their car, what have you. Uh, so we started it, we founded it as, as Haven Women with the full anticipation 
that at some point there'll be a haven men and a haven families. Haven stands for helping achieve veterans empowerment now. Um, so yeah, it was the beginning of a brand. Then um, when I left the organization to come to my current foundation, which we just created, the VBC Giving Foundation, um, when I took over the organization as PVCH, I think we had $212 in the bank. When I left Haven, uh, we had almost $400,000 in the bank. Wow. That's incredible. Um, Quite a journey. I, it, it, so speaking of journeys, I am really interested in how Dana Spain, who I met five years ago, became the Dana Spain. So can you take us back to... I know your family's business had a huge impact on on who you are, who you became, and your parents were certainly a big part of that. Uh, can you t- take us back as far back as you think matters in uh, in what you've done and and how you've gotten on this path? Okay, I'll tell you two things. They they both come directly from my parents. I started working in the stores, my family stores, when I was seven. Uh, <laughs> my I used to work with my grandparents at the time, and they would put me on a candy tub so that I was tall enough to reach the register. And my grandmother taught me how to run register. So working from a very young age and working really every single day of my life had a huge impact. And the other is that my parents were very involved with philanthropy even before we really had money. So it was always uh, both their, their mantra to give back to community. So when I was in, I don't even think I was a teenager, maybe 12, maybe 13, I was voluntold that I was going to start community service and started it actually at charity events where um, I think, I don't think it, I think it would be frowned upon at this point, but I remember vividly for a rehabilitation hospital that was raising money, there was a gala and I recruited my girlfriends. Again, we're all 12, 13 years old and we're selling script to their casino night. Uh, (laughs) Nope. I don't know how legal that was. That was all for charity. Um, but that it sort of started the itch and um, did a lot of community service and, and worked all the way through elementary school and junior high and high school and then college. Um, so I've always had um, a job and, and, um, and don't know how not to work or how not to give back. It's always fascinating to me if I could just go out on a tangent for a second. You can. Um, that people in my age group, you can figure out how old I am on your own, I'm not going to tell you. Um, <laughs> people in my age group that don't serve on boards, don't get involved in community, don't have any sort of charitable outlet. I- I'm just fascinated that people can exist without having some sort of tie to their community. That could be their high school, that could be their college, that could be their sorority, that could be that could be their local soup kitchen with their families. That could be reading to kids in a hospital. Anything. I mean, the the, the opportunities and the and the needs in one's community are endless. And it's always fascinating to me how people say, "Oh, I've I've never done any community outreach, and I just want to punch them in the face." <laughs> so I'll join you on that tangent, and I, I think volunteerism has has become this really impossible thing. And Tim Ferriss refers to it as slacktivism. People think that because they're ranting and raving on Facebook posts or Instagram posts about something that's going on in the world, that they're doing something about it and they're not. And they're, to your point, there's, there's a million needs out there and the vast majority, and this is not, this is not political. The vast majority of us just have 
so much to give back and whether that's experience, whether that's time, whether that's money. And I prefer to, that, that people give back experience and time because I think it's more meaningful and, and it, it's more rewarding. It, it boggles my mind that people don't find a way to, to make time to give back. And I know balance is a big part of your life and we'll get to that eventually, but I'm curious why pets and vets and how did those two become uh, your passion projects? I think the easier one is probably vets uh, in that uh, by the time it occurred to me that I should be serving my country, um, I was, as the Bugs Bunny cartoons used to refer to it as 4F, that uh, I, was, I had two bad knees and arthritis and there was no way that I was going to be uh, uh, up to physical snuff for our military. Um, so I never had the honor and the privilege of serving our country and wearing the uniform and just decided that since I couldn't, then I would serve those who have served. And that's really where that came from. It started um, right after college, actually, which is a long time ago, um, and have served on a variety of boards that are specific to active military and their families and veterans affairs. So that's just love of country and and service to those who have served our country. In terms of animals, uh, I you know a lot of people when you go for an interview say, "Are you a people person?" I always hated that. What the hell does that mean, right? What is that? Uh, I am a person, so maybe uh, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I am definitely one of the animal people. I definitely have a, a great rapport and affection for animals, uh, especially those who. Um, you know, animals can't speak for themselves, obviously. Um, and so um, I got into rescue. I wasn't raised with animals. We didn't have animals in the house. But No kidding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the second that I graduated college and had my own apartment, first thing I did was buy, not knowing any better, a dog. <laughs> Um, which I can, you know, honestly say, okay, well, I bought a pre-read dog and that was really stupid. And now I can educate other people on why that's a really stupid decision. Um, got into rescue, uh, I guess in my twenties and originally used it for, here's the other thing I'm going to say about volunteerism and community give back is that selfishly it's extraordinarily rewarding. And it is what you make of it, right? Sometimes it just makes you feel good. Sometimes it makes you feel good about yourself. When I was working in animal shelters, it was relaxation from an otherwise extraordinarily busy, hectic life. So I would be working for my family company. I was on the road, sometimes 12, 14, 16 hours. And then I had two shifts at my local animal shelter. And I was supposed to be there volunteering and cleaning cages and scooping poop for like two to three <laughs> hours at a time. And I would disappear for 10 because I was just in such a happy place there, socializing the animals and taking care of them and helping them get out to their forever homes. Um, and I was recruited actually to um, an alliance that the city was putting together for, it was called the, uh, the Alliance for Philadelphia's Animals. And it was a joke. I was, <laughs> it was virtue signaling before virtue signaling was virtue signaling is what I'm saying. There's a bunch of people who sat in a room, like a lot of charity boards, patted themselves on the back and say, aren't we doing great work, which they were not. Um, but the city shelter here in Philadelphia was in a disastrous shape and a very visionary 
a young woman who was on the Alliance, left the Alliance to take over the city animal shelter and recruited me to come along. And then all of a sudden I was president of the city animal shelter. I was a volunteer <laughs> scooping poop. And then I was in charge of 30,000 animals a year for the city of Philadelphia. Made no sense. On a volunteer basis. On a volunteer basis. <laughs> so I had to educate myself about the whole animal industry and rescue and housing animals and I mean the whole thing. Um, and what I realized is that it was a sham. And there was an awful lot of money being spent in the ether and not actually saving animals. So PAWS was born originally as a restricted fund under this city, quasi-city organization, because as we started raising money, the city wanted to cut our budget. I said, no, no, we're raising money because you're not giving us enough money to actually save anything. You're just giving us enough money to keep the lights on. Um, so we spun off PAWS as its own 501c3 uh, once we lost the city contract, we said, you know what? We don't want to kill animals anymore. Let's save a lot of animals. Uh, and it took us 10 years, but we went from a high kill city where mm, uh, one in, we had an 11% save rate. And, wow. um, and that was despite the city's best effort to kill them all. We had an 11% save rate. And in 10 years, we went to an 87% save rate as a city. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, we open three locations, offer low-cost and no-cost veterinary services, especially to vulnerable populations. And um, and we touch, uh, as an organization, PAWS touches over 30,000 uh, animals and families every year. That's it's incredible. And I think, I mean, that defines, you know, we tend to, I think our audience tends to be from the architectural engineering, construction and real estate development industry, but the, the inspiring people in places goal is really just to highlight entrepreneurship in public agencies or in public service. And back to volunteerism, like there's all kinds of ways we can bring value to um, public services and public agencies just by injecting a little bit of energy and a little bit of spirit and a little bit of different perspective. And I, I think I always use entrepreneurship because it's like, we're used to starting with nothing and bootstrapping and figuring out like, we don't need a public budget to, to start solving problems. We, we can start building systems and then we can start building momentum to, to fix things. And I think it's incredible. And for people that are outside of Philadelphia, pause is Philadelphia animal welfare society. I mean, this is a huge, well-known, well-branded, what Dana did uh, from a public relations and, and really a mission standpoint is, is remarkable. Um, I would point out that once we lost the city contract, which at the time was about mm, $2.6 million a year, everybody within the organization, on the board, I would say, not within the organization, because the employees and volunteers knew that we could do it. The board was a little nervous. Like, what are we going to do with all, all that money? I said, we have our own facilities. We purchased our own real estate. Always own the bricks, friends. Always own the bricks. <laughs> uh, we purchased our own real estate. Uh, we partnered with a, a variety of large and small organizations. We did fundraisers that were from $15 a head to $300 a head and everywhere in between. We had a huge calendar of events and fundraisers and adoptions and fees for service for for veterinary care and spay and neuter and all of that. And we were self-sustaining uh, as soon as we broke off from the city. We, you know, we, it, it, we didn't need them. 
they needed us. In fact, six months after we lost the contract, they came back and asked us to take it back over because the organization that took it was really messing it up. And we said, no, thank you. We don't want to kill animals anymore. So we'll be your biggest rescue partner and we'll get as many animals out as possible. But we're not going back into that business. Our, our business is to care for and save animals and keep families together. You know, sometimes, especially in, in some of the rougher neighborhoods here, um, little Spot or uh, Fido is really the only joy in a household. Yeah. And when the family can't afford simple services like, you know, flea control, mites control, mange control, um, or spay and neutering their pet, they have to give them up. And that's, and that shouldn't happen if they're in a loving home. So yeah, it's, um, it's been a labor of love, but the same, I think applies. It's like every five to seven years, my father used to say that I, I have, um, I bore easily (laughs) said to my husband, actually, when he asked for my hand in marriage, he said, I like you, you know, my wife likes you. Um, I don't think she'll ever marry you. And if she does keep it interesting, cause she bores easily every five to seven years, <laughs> I change careers and I change charities. The longest run was with pause. And that was, that was 10 years. And I think I overstayed my welcome. Um, but I have had a very circuitous career. I was, I was in retail with my family business. Then I was a translator for a French bank in New York on the currency exchange. Wow. Um, then I came back to my family business as we were growing exponentially. Then the family sold the company to a national public uh, company. And um, and I went into publishing for no apparent reason. And I had two <laughs> magazines and a bunch of award-winning websites. And then I was bought out by a national company and then said, okay, well, maybe, you know, I'm good at branding. Maybe I should go have a branding consultancy, which I did for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, started to get back into real estate development because uh, I like to design things. I like to make things look pretty and make things look practical and give people homes that, that they can be proud of. And most, a lot, not most, a lot of construction, both on-site and off-site construction is garbage. And it's done with the cheapest finishing as possible without the end user in mind. At VBC, we're very conscious of the end user and we make a house a home, whether it's an apartment in a multifamily or a, a triplex, a duplex, a single family townhome, or always considering what's the practical use. And would I want to live there with my family, my kids and my dog? So, um, yeah, it's been very circuitous. I have no idea what's next. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Hopefully you, you stick with this for a little while because you're doing great things. Uh, I'm very you excited sa- about the new foundation and what we're building. Me too. Um, and I think that, you know, outside of this call, I think there's a lot that we can be doing together. Um, oh, I think it's, down. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not afraid. I think it's important, you know, VBC is volumetric building companies. Right. It's a modular construction company. And, and Dana and I reconnected not too long ago because of uh, a potential hotel project that we're working on at a winery. But then she started telling me about uh, a veterans housing project that, is kind of her next, her, her post Haven, uh, project. Before we get to that, you said something always on the bricks. And I'm curious if your family, when they were in retail, if they owned the property and if that's where you got that. Yeah. I'm not going to say that my father invented it. It was really the McDonald's model. Right. Right. So if you, and if you haven't seen that movie, it's worth it. I love it. You know, it wasn't the best movie ever written, but it was definitely a great message in that you're never going to make a billion dollars by selling French fries at a penny a piece. 
So we were in the dollar store business and in the Hallmark card business, we were never going to make a billion dollars on dollar store items, although we tried real hard. Um, whenever there was an opportunity to buy the bricks, whether it was a standalone, a pad site, a strip center, which is now called a lifestyle center for no apparent reason, uh, we, we bought, that's what we bought. And so we became our own landlords. Now, the upside of all of this is that when we sold the company, the real estate was held in a, a separate uh, corporation. So the new company not only paid us an exorbitant amount of money not to go public and for them to take our stores, but then we became their landlord. That's awesome. So, yeah. And especially in a charity situation, if you can raise the money to buy the building, there's never that concern of, well, what, what the heck am I going to do when my lease runs out? Or right. will the landlord take care of the property? Or are they going to, is the neighborhood going to change? My rent's going to go up exponentially, right? You own the property, you own the property. Yeah. Um, I We've already covered a number of life lessons, but uh, the second part of the show, we focus on navigating. And, and since you've had so much philanthropic, entrepreneurial leadership experience, uh, any stories that stand out uh, that, that the audience might benefit from? I'll say on the on both sides, although I'm gonna, I'll tell you a couple of stories, but the, the the basically the the mantra here, the stream, the the idea that threads through both charity and for profit entrepreneurship is don't believe the no, no. If you get a no, you're asking the question in the wrong in the wrong way especially in charity. If somebody says no to you in charity, you're not describing the mission properly. You're not describing the mission properly to the correct audience. The audience is correct, but your message is bad. Don't accept the no. You're, you have to rewire to accept only yes. And that also comes from your board of directors, for-profit or charity. Everybody's going to tell you it's not going to happen. Whatever it is, it could be growth. It could be your second location. It could be opening a new department in your business, acquiring uh, a new subsidiary or something. We're an end-to-end -end solution here at BBC. So we have architectural and engineering. We handle uh, logistics. We have our own manufacturing plant. We do our own sets and seams. We have our own construction company, so we can do all of our own GCing. We have our own roofing company. Um, so we are an integrated solution. We didn't get there from last Tuesday, right? It means that you're buying smaller companies and you're expanding into things that you may not know, uh, like architecture and engineering is completely different than construction. And any architect and engineer will tell you that most people don't understand it on the construction side. And the construction people will say the architects and the engineers have no idea what they're doing because they're not designing for what needs to be built in the field. So for a construction company, to acquire an A&E team was a big shift in our culture and our dynamic. It was a bumpy, rocky road. It was an expensive proposition. It has made us better, faster, stronger, different and unique than any other modular company on, in the nation. So it was worth it. Everybody at the top said, nah, let's not do that. But we did. Right? Same thing with manufacturing. We were manufacturing in other people's plants. We don't know anything about manufacturing. We knew how to build things on site. 
we knew what modules are supposed to look like, but we never built our own modules. We had no idea what we were getting into. There was a plant. It was a good opportunity. Everybody sat down. We hashed out 8,000 ways that it was going to fail. And we said, <laughs> this is a yes, not a no. And we bought a manufacturing plant. And I got news for you. It's very successful, wildly profitable. And we went from, took over the plant with 39 or 40 employees. We have 151 employees and uh, 12% of our workforce are veterans. Uh, and it's a very diverse workforce. And we offer career advancement and we offer uh, college courses that are paid for by the state uh, through Richmond County Community College in North Carolina, where people can get an education and really advance in their careers um, and earn a really solid living to take care of their families. So it's um, don't ever take no for an answer. General Duke DeLuca, who I work for, um, he was on the show and he said, no is just an invitation for further negotiation. That, I love that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Here's the other thing. Never negotiate against yourself. And what I mean by that is if, if it's not self-evident and sometimes it's not, somebody will say, if you walk into a car dealership and there's a sticker, there's a sticker on the car right? If you walked into a car dealership and there wasn't a sticker on the car and the salesperson comes over to you and says, how much would you pay for this car? Well, if you answer that question, you're negotiating against yourself. Right. You have no frame of reference. You might've looked it up online. Maybe you have some frame of reference, but maybe they're offering a discount today that you didn't know. You name a price, they can only go up from there. Yeah. You're anchored. Right. So when we go into deal negotiations and contract negotiations, you have to negotiate from a position of strength. Never show your cards, never show how badly you want it. It just always negotiate from a position of strength, even if you don't have one. Yeah. Um, Curious how you went from the publishing industry to the construction industry and how you educated yourself uh, quickly, because I think there's a number of people and, and, I'm actually putting this out, uh, I think, tomorrow in an email. Um, I, I think that there's a ton of opportunity in public infrastructure and, and engineering and construction. And I think that there's a number of veterans looking to transition to that space. Um, I'm curious how you self-taught yourself in the industry. Uh, here's what I'm going to think. Uh, I teach myself a lot of things. <laughs> uh, teach myself a lot of things. And one thing that uh, my father always said, I'm, I reference him a lot because he was my, my business guru. Uh, and we were very close. He always says, don't sign anything that you didn't read every single word. So, you know, online, we have to accept the, uh, the general conditions, right? And you scroll through and you just click to accept. I'm one of the crazy people that reads every single word of what I'm accepting. Every mortgage, every promissory note, every contract, I Kid, I have a very high-priced uh, law firm that, that works with me, and I find typos, and I ask questions to all of the contracts that they put together, and they think that I'm funny and their best and worst client because, and I always say to them, uh, that Phoenix Online Law Degree is really paying off for me. Do you want to hire me yet? <laughs> I didn't, I am not an environmental uh, specialist, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express once in Grantville, Pennsylvania. So I read everything. And I'll give you a really good example of that. Um, I bought a a building with a former business partner. And 
And here's another little note for your audience of entrepreneurs. Choose your business partners even more carefully than your spouses. Because getting divorced from them is more difficult. Amen. Yeah. And uh, and I had a doozy. And I've been divorced in real life. And that was... (laughs) My ex-husband and I are really still friends and not so much my ex-business partner. Anyway, I digress. We bought this building that we had no business buying because it was way too big for where we were as a development firm at the time. But we bought it anyway because it was on sale. And it turns out that it had some environmental issues. So those of you in construction and land development where you do a phase one and you say, I can't believe the bank is requiring the phase one and then the phase two. Good news for you. Pay for the phase one and the phase two, even if you don't think that you need it and pay for it with a really, really good, reputable company. Because once you buy the building and you realize that in addition to lead-based paint, which is easy, and asbestos, which is also pretty easy, that you have volatile organic chemicals or contaminants, depending on which C, I've seen both, um, then you're in a world of very expensive hurt. And now it's yours and it's your problem. So when I realized that we had environmental issues in that building, I read everything I could possibly get my hands on about environmental remediation um, and mitigation, which is different than remediation. Um, so I am I became an environmental specialist because after that experience, and we had to go through the whole act too. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that process, but that's basically saying to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I am a polluter because I have a building that is polluting the universe. So I'm going to self-admit and then I'm going to put myself through hoops of fire and lots of bells and whistles because I want to be in compliance and then nobody can sue me for getting sick and you can't come and take my building and condemn it and blah, blah, blah. It's an ongoing process. It never stops. Uh, And once I was in that situation, I thought, okay, I'm going to educate myself as much as possible. And when I go to see other land or other buildings, I know exactly what I'm looking for. So what I can say is when, whether you're interested and have self-interest or not, if you come across something that is going to make or break your business, um, learn about it, read about it, research it, take the time and the effort to, actually understand what it is that you're looking at and what it is that you're signing. All right. So you did all your research. Can I ask how that project turned out for you and your investors? All the investors got all their money back. Uh, That's a win. That is considering what we were up against. That's an enormous win. Uh, Me, not so much, but uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel because we did this as a historic rehabilitation, we did it with federal historic tax credits. Uh, my recapture period is up at the end of this year and I'm selling my interest in the building. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure that I'm gonna get out whole. When, uh, during this, the past five years of this recapture and, and since we put the building into service in 2016, I would often go to my father for advice and he says, honey, it was, an education, a wildly expensive education, but it was an education. And he was absolutely right. It taught me a lot of things um, in addition to the environmental stuff and and learning all about construction because my 
you know, my ex-partner who was supposed to handle that did not handle that. And I had to step in and really understand everything, learn about eight very complicated HVAC systems um, and elevators and a whole bunch of things that I didn't think that I would ever need to know in my lifetime and now can say, I have a really good handle on that. Um, but also in terms of handling, um, you know, handling how to w play well in the sandbox with other people. Yeah. So uh, we were a very, very large project and we chose to do it almost 100% union, um, mostly just to avoid the agita of, you know, the rat and the crying babies and, and the rest of it. Um, and I play nicely with anybody who's going to play nicely with me. So, you know, let's sit down, let's negotiate, let's come up with, with something that's mutually beneficial. And in most cases, um, oh, and everybody, of course, had to support my charity. So that was <laughs> built into the contract. <laughs> you you can have this $2 million contract, Mr. Uh, Carpenter, but you're going to come fix up my, my veterans shelter and uh, for free. Anyway, um, we Entrepreneurs are always solving problems. That's right. Often at the same time. That's right. And don't be ever be afraid to shake people down for money because once you have money, somebody else is going to shake you down. <laughs> so feel free. Um, so we had one particular union that was really causing a lot of problems. They were causing problems with the other unions. They were making threats within the building. Um, they were doing a lot of damage. They were stealing from the job site. And, um, and I had had enough. I, I called the business agent and I said, I'm, I'm locking everybody out. I finally have your guys on tape stealing from me. So in addition to the threats that I can't prove and the hearsay and the rumors that they're going to break windows and blow up the building and this, that, and the other thing, I finally have actual proof. And in addition to locking you out of the building, I'm going to have them prosecuted. And, uh, he said, oh, I'll, I'll meet you down on site and, and we'll figure it out and we'll work it out. And I said, fine. Um, for those of you in, in your audience, I am 5'2 on a good day with big hair in my <laughs> construction boots. Okay? I am not a, a large woman. I am not a tall woman. Uh, and I had this guy, not my business agent that I worked with, um, but the territory business agent who was 6'7 and right out of central casting from a 1950s union movie, screaming expletives over my head and spitting at me. And, and I thought to myself, this is like, this can't be real. And I let him just spew all his expletives and told me that this is not how anything works in Philadelphia and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I just looked at him and said, do I look, flustered to you? Do you want to take a shot at me? See where that, you know, where that goes? See any, just where are we going with any of this? Because you screaming at me is not going to change the situation. I own that building. Your guy stole from me. And now you're out of a job, period. And I thought his head was literally going to pop off his body because He's used to the interaction, mostly with men in the construction industry, and didn't know what to do with any of that. I said, so we can either talk rationally and reasonably, or if you continue screaming expletives over my head, then, you know, give yourself a coronary and I'm all good with that. I'm going back inside the building. So I'm good. It was 
not only eye-opening for him, but for the head, very well-known head of uh, a very powerful local union who called me and said, I think you, I think you made my, my business agent cry. I said, well, <laughs> I offered him to take a swing at me, but he declined <laughs> that offer. And then I got everybody who was left on the job, all of the, the foremen, from the subcontractors and the union stewards. And I put them all in the proverbial circle and said, okay, now let's air all of our grievances because we have a job to get done. We know what happened with XYZ company. They are not coming back. They, you know, they were escorted off the job site. We don't want that to happen to anybody else, but the rules are changing. And so uh, BJ, yesterday you had some not kind words to say about Joe. Joe is now standing right in front of you. Would you care to say those not so kind words to Joe? <laughs> Joe, you called BJ and XYZ. BJ is now right here in front of you. Would you like to address that with BJ? And then all of a sudden people were looking at their shoes and kind of looking at the ceiling. And I said, okay, so let's cut the crap, gentlemen, and let's get a building finished, shall we? You get paid, I get paid, everybody goes home to their families, and it's a win-win for everybody. And from there on, it was, you know, I put my big girl pants on, and I'm not going to take any crap, and this is my livelihood that you're screwing with, and if you want to screw with your own livelihood, that's your choice, but you're not going to screw around on my time. And so, you know, that was that was the line in the sand. So that building taught me an awful lot. It was a very expensive education, but it, it taught me an awful lot, and sometimes, uh, you have to put your big boy and girl pants on and come to the scene with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. Not to say that you have to be overly aggressive or, um, you know, acerbic all the time, but there has to be something. I think every entrepreneur needs the the kind side and the absolutely nobody wants to be on your dark side side. I agree. And and I think that goes for all anybody that's project management and we call it project leadership. Somebody needs to be leading the ship and too often in construction, there's too many hands in the pot and nobody's taking control. Um, So accountability. Exactly. And I agree with your dad. What, you know, despite the expensive lesson, it was a great lesson and probably led you to VBC. Um, it did lead me to VBC. When we were finishing that large project, um, we sued the former developer who sold us this contaminated building because uh, there were reps and warranties that we had built into the agreement of sale. And those reps and warranties were that you're selling me a building that you've already had cleaned and you're giving me environmental reports that says that it's clean. And he lied. And he, he committed fraud is really what he did. Um, and he wasn't a good guy um, and thought he could get away with it. And he didn't like me very much from the very beginning because I didn't buy his, like, I'm just the old man trying to retire. I saw through his, his facade, which is why he only worked. He would only speak to my uh, now ex-partner. Um, so, uh, cause he bought, he bought what he was selling. I did not buy what he was selling. So he had reps and warranties. We sued him. The only thing that he had was a plot of land across the street. The plot of land was perfect for modular. And uh, my PM at the time brought me Vaughn said, you should see what this guy is building out in Roxborough. He's taking Legos and making houses. It's unbelievable. 
I was like, what, you expect me to build like double wides? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, we're building an apartment building. And she said, no, it's, it's pretty amazing. You really need to see it. So I met with Vaughn and I went out to see the factory that he was using at the time in rural Pennsylvania. I have to tell you, I was fascinated. I just was the most... It was the most interesting experience, but also kind of that eureka moment. Like, why why aren't we building everything in a factory? Why are we building in the middle of the city where things can get stolen or vandalized or a storm could come through and all of a sudden all your wood is wet and all that wet wood then goes behind your walls and could grow mold? And why are we doing any of this? Why aren't we making buildings in a factory? So we did 36 apartments. Uh, it was in and out in less than a year from me acquiring the land to uh, CO and lease up. And we were about 30% occupied and um, an, inv an outside investor from the Midwest came in and said, we really love modular units. We don't like to build them, but we like to own them. Paid me a ridiculous amount of money. It's not even a cap rate. It was just a ridiculous amount of money <laughs> and took my building. And I said, well, that was easy. Let's do that again. Why should I go through environmental concerns and, and, re and historic rehabs and sticks and bricks and union issues and all the rest of it? Let's just, let's just build big buildings and use modular. And so that's what I've been doing since. And um, because, of, because of what I was doing on the, on the people sheltering side, not the animal sheltering side, uh, being in the affordable housing vertical for VBC was a natural fit. So I'm not actually an employee of, the, of VBC, more as a uh, consultant and a contractor. I'm a client. I'm an investor. I manage the other investors. And now I manage the affordable, the affordable and supportive housing vertical and I'm president of the VBC Giving Foundation. Uh, and we're building our first, as you mentioned, Veterans Village, which is a project that is a natural progression, both for VBC as a socially conscious investment in the community that we serve, but also a natural progression from Haven because when our ladies who came to us broken and we put through this really vigorous enrichment program and they join the sorority of ladies at our house and they start making positive decisions for mind, body and soul and then they come out the other side and they're ready to take on the world and rejoin productive civilian life. And we put them in squalor. And it was, it's just abhorrent. I mean, that's not the way to break the cycle of addiction and homelessness is to put people in substandard housing. People need safe, respectable, resilient housing as a bare minimum yeah. of a way to succeed. If you're worried about the walls caving in and mold and drips and leaks and slumlords, you cannot possibly be the best person that you can be. And especially if you're battling demons and PTSD and military sexual trauma and drug addiction and the rest of it, you just, you're just not going to do it. Completely so agree. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That's Starts right. with safe shelter, That's safe exactly shelter and security. Right. That's exactly right. And so... The Veterans Village is, is partnering with Haven in the sense that our ladies coming out of Haven will have a great place to go for their first permanent housing stop. They can live there forever, but the goal is that they come to us, they're in good housing, they have jobs or 100% disability or 
some combination thereof, and then they can go on and buy a house or a condo or move to a bigger apartment or you know whatever their financial uh, situation allows, but they're always going to be safe with us. That's great. All right, in our last five minutes, a couple rapid fire, fire questions. Oh boy. Favorite quote and why? Favorite quote. Okay. Uh, better a hole than an a-hole. And that is sometimes you don't want to fire somebody because you're worried about the hole in your team. And the a-hole is a cancer and will infect everybody around them. And if you take the a-hole out and you just have a hole, the team will naturally stitch up that hole. So better a hole than an a-hole. That's a Bernieism. That's my dad. Well, (laughs) I love that one. I've never heard it. And it's so true. Um, Yeah. Bad teammates take away for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Bad teammates take away so much from culture and yeah, I'm with you. Uh, most read book or most gifted book? Um, most the book that really opened my eyes and changed my life was recommended by Joe Evangelisti, and it's the Big Leap. It's about um, your self-limiting problems, not living in your zone of genius, living in your zone of comfort, and how to retrain your mind and retrain your the way that you use the time that you have in the day to make your life better and make yourself more successful. And I read it in four hours. I sat down and read the entire book and I just, and then I started texting and calling people and saying, Oh my God, you have to read this book. (laughs) I I have, I have also gifted that a few times, uh, Gay Hendricks and I've met Gay Hendricks. He's, he's a lovely human being and like the most mild manner, calm, peaceful man you've ever met. I reached out to them on their website after I read the book and said, "You, lit- I felt like you were literally speaking to me and you changed my life. And he or someone on his team emailed me back and said, we really appreciate that. And so um, I started reading Zone of Genius, which I have not finished, but the big leap was a big deal. Yeah. The, the one tip that uh, he gave, it was a cohort I was involved in uh, and he said people, people pay like $10,000 to come out to his ranch or whatever it is. Um, and it's like a two year wait. And he said that you don't have to pay that. All he does is puts people in a room and they basically meditate for, um, 15 minutes with their eyes closed saying, Hmm, what is my zone of genius? Something (laughs) like that. Like he's basically like, just, just take the time to think about what really naturally excites you and that you're great at. Yeah, uh, so great, you, great recommendation. And I know what I'm great at. I'm great at creating things. I'm great at the roll up your sleeves, bootstrapping, organic growth, the vision. And once something is stabilized, apparently you're bored. I'm you're bored. <laughs> the seven year itch. Yeah. If it takes you that long to stabilize. That's right. Uh, dead or alive. If you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? Um. Uh, Ronald Reagan, but not Nancy. Um, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, because she was badass. <laughs> Agree. In so many ways. And uh, I don't know. 
You know what? I'm looking at his poster right now. This isn't politically correct, but I really would have liked to have lunch with Frank Rizzo. Oh, yeah? <laughs> all right. He was firm but fair. But they're all <laughs> political figures. Let me think. Is there somebody else in the um, in the universe that uh, would excite me to... Huh. I don't really know. I, lo- I love Ronald, Reag- Ronald Reagan. Um, legacy. What do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? She got shit done. <laughs> that was quick. And and it's true. And that's I, it. I'm excited to see how much more shit you get done. That's right. I don't want any fluff. I, I would say um, feared by some, loved by many. <laughs> that's a good one, too. You know what? It's just I, I've been approached on, on a number of occasions. And as you know, I was considering a, a run for mayor back in 2013 and um, and my campaign slogan would have been, you know, she gets it gets. Uh, I like it, it done, but I like yeah, it. I get shit done. That's what I do. You sure do. <laughs> uh, you define mover and shaker, in my opinion. Um, all right. In the words of Andy Reid, the time is yours. What would you love to leave with our audience? I'd like to leave with your audience that all of this is is lots of fun and I love to create things and I love to build things and design things and all the good stuff that we've talked about. But at the end of the day, uh, as much as I live to work and not work to live or vice versa, and I love working, there really has to be a work-life balance. It's cliche, it's overused, it's all of that, um, but it really comes down to making the best use of your time. Don't work hard, work smart. Again, very cliche and overused, but this is it. So at the end of the day, when I go home to my husband and my cats, that's my time. I don't meet, I don't do breakfast meetings. If I could leave your audience with anything, don't do a breakfast meeting and someone, unless someone is handing you at least a four to five figure check, if not more. I do not do breakfast meetings unless somebody is bringing me money for me or my charity. And you know why? Because I get up in the morning, I have a ritual, I'm up before dawn, I have my coffee, I update myself on news or entertainment or whatever. I read the paper. I'm one of those crazy people that reads the paper, especially the comics. Then I get into the gym. Then I check my email a couple hours later. And that's my time. And my time is my time. And it sets my course for the entire day. So don't forget to make time for yourself, for your friends, for your family, for your fitness, for your faith. And that leads to financial freedom. Amen. Self-care is not selfish, as somebody has told me. That's right. Uh, And for all you veterans out there that like we were, we had it banged into our head that, you know, servant leadership, servant leadership is, uh, you can't lead without taking care of yourself. It's like the the analogy of the when you're on the airplane and they say, put your mask on first, you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. So I will uh, double down on that. Dana, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for always inspiring. Well, thanks. I appreciate you having me and I hope that uh, I made a difference today. You sure did. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. B 
Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter if you want to learn more about the MCFA DNA. And we will be posting comments uh, to the podcast notes for all of Dana Spain's uh, projects, initiatives, and all the good she's doing for veterans. Until next time, have a great weekend. Thanks.